Okay, got it. Ready? <clears throat> You're listening to Paul Elmore. Paul Elmore. <laughs> Shh. Last week, I told you I was going to tell you a story um, about how to apply some of this stuff that we've been talking about. We spent a deep dive last week into scriptures and what it talks about on how to handle anxiety and stress and situations like that. And I told you I was going to tell you a story about um, my motorcycle. It's a little distorted up there for some reason, but that is a 1982 Yamaha XJ650 uh, Seca for those who care about motorcycles. I uh, bought it for $500 off of Craigslist and spent a winter going over the entire thing. Rebuilt it, um, made sure it was running really, really nice. Powerful little bike, a lot of fun. I bought it because my son, my oldest son, he bought uh, a motorcycle um, about a year before and it's like, hey, it would be fun to go riding motorcycles with my boy. So I bought one. My other son and I went and took the class together and got our licenses and ended up fixing that thing up and driving it around. And it was fun for a while. And then on Father's Day last year, 2018, my wife was out running some errands, doing some stuff, and I said, it's gonna be a really good day to kind of tune it up. For those who don't know much about motorcycles, this has four carburetors on it. And syncing and balancing four carburetors is like um, magic and voodoo. Getting all the little things dialed in just right and getting everything to, to run right can be tricky. And so what you typically do is you t get on the motorcycle, you take it out for a ride, get it all warmed up, you bring it in, and then you have to make all the little fine adjustments to each of the carburetors. You jump on the bike, you take it out again, you see if it's lagging or what's going on. You come back in, you make a few more adjustments. I had done that about three or four times and I had it just dialed in. It was purring. And again, that's like magic with an old bike like this. And what I had done is, um, this is actually, I don't know if you can see it really, it kind of washes out, that's really unfortunate. Uh, this is where I live, right here on the corner, and this is a long street that comes down this way, and then Fallbrook comes over here, so kind of T-bones right here. Um, what I had done is, for the last ride of the day, I took it out, and I come out of my driveway, and I drive down here, and here's a closer up, again, it's kind of washed out, that's too bad, but here's the street running this way, and Abby comes in this way, and what I had done is, let's see if this will work, I take my motorcycle, which is right there, and I drive down Abbey right to that little spot, and then I'm stopped at this T, this T junction here because I want to turn right and go on and run and make sure the bike's running the right way and everything. And as I'm stopped there, and I'm stopped just like anyone else does, right-hand lane, middle of the lane, um, whenever I ride, I ride uh, all the gear all the time so that I have a helmet and everything's on, all the protective stuff. And right coming this way is a young gal in a white BMW who decides she's going to turn left into here, but she's on her phone, which is like pretty common nowadays. And as she comes up this way, she cuts the corner, which does what to me? Well, she tries to run me over, and I can see this coming, and so it is like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, if I don't do something to get out of the way, I'm going to get smushed. And so as she started coming towards me, I started doing the, hey, hey, yelling, but I've got a full face mask on. She probably can't hear. She's in a car. She's distracted on her phone. Yelling isn't doing anything. And as she's coming right at my front wheel, I'm realizing if I don't do something, I'm going to get hit. So I do what 
I think is pretty logical, which is I dump the bike. I bail off to the right-hand side onto the curb because she was about to crush my left leg between her front bumper and my motorcycle. Happy Father's Day. So I dump the bike, and that catches her attention, fortunately. That's good news. And I'm yelling, you know, you know, hey, hey, stop, stop. And she stopped. So I was actually surprised. She stopped, and she pulled over. It was her and two other... Um, again, uh, probably young 20-something or other, uh, and she immediately gets out and goes, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, and proceeds to tell me the story about how she'd been up all night, her and her friends had been doing a concert, she has, was just dropping off a friend who lived around the corner, she was super tired, um, and she didn't see me, and all the normal story. I am, as you can imagine, rattled. My body does what anyone else's body would do in that situation is, it's actually sitting there shaking, it's a little bit of trembling, I'm breathing real heavy. I'm a little frustrated, okay? I'm a little mad because someone tried to run me over and it's not a pleasant experience to have on a normal Saturday, Sunday afternoon. But we do what is, again, I would argue fairly common when there's an accident, which is I start taking pictures of her license plate number, I take pictures of my bike on the side of the road, there's a car behind me who helps me get the bike up, it's leaking fuel everywhere now. Um, someone else down the road had seen this happen and they came kind of walking and, and what's going on and, and I get her license information and I get her, her insurance information and all those normal things. And then, She's rattled by that. She's got a little tears going on. She's a little frustrated. And again, it's understandable. And so my trauma counselor brain kicks in and it's like, okay, everyone just, just breathe for a second. Let your body shake. Let's go through this. We'll be all right. Let's, let's move through it. And then it's like, well, how do we want to proceed? And I said, well, here's what I'm going to do. Um, I'm going to go assess what the damages are, see if I can get the bike home, see if it'll start. Um, it wasn't running really, really well at that point. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assess what's the damages, what's happened, and then I will get in touch with you and I have your contact information. Seems like a reasonable course of action. Um, we proceeded to have a text message uh, chain go on. These are the exact text messages that happened between her and I over a week. Okay? Let's see what happens. This is kind of fun. Her name is Lindsay. No, the names have not been changed to protect the innocent. All right. Hi, Lindsay. This is Paul, the motorcyclist from today. I hope you're doing okay. This was the same day. I thought I'd text you my contact information. I'll be making some calls tomorrow and finding out how much some of the repairs are going to be, and then I can give you a better idea of how we need to proceed, okay? Because we had talked about if it's, you know, not that expensive, deductibles and all those things, you don't want it on your, you don't want it on your record. That's understandable. We'll kind of handle it without insurance, and, and all will be well. And that, that, that can happen amongst people. That's fairly reasonable. The text message I got back that same night says, hello, Paul, thank you for reaching out to me so I can stay in contact with you. It really shook me up today and I want you to know from the bottom of my heart that, I am so, that I'm sorry this happened and I wanna make it right. I won't give you excuses, of course. I take full responsibility and wanna make sure your bike is okay to ride again. A lot added up to as to why this happened, but I've learned from it. Sounds pretty reasonable, doesn't it? It's like, okay, this is gonna turn out okay. Yeah. This is the best way to reach me as well. I hope you're all right, and thank you for being patient with me as this really scared me. I've never had anything like this happen to me before. I told my mother and father, you're welcome to talk to either. Hope your night is better. So that's all that same night. We're moving on in a good progression. I take a couple days. I get some estimates and do some assessments of my bike. Here's what I text back. 
Hi again, Lindsay. Wanted to get you an update of what I found out this week regarding the motorcycle repair estimates. It looks like the mirror, foot peg, and throttle assembly were all damaged and that will need to be replaced. The fuel tank was also dented as well when the bike fell. Parts, time, and labor for everything to be fixed is about $750. Okay, it's not terrible. And um, my wife and I will be happy to meet up somewhere in Clackamas area to talk more. If you have any questions, when you're ready to settle the repair bill, we'll be able to take cash or certified check or even meet at a bank somewhere. Again, if you or your folks have any questions, we're more than happy to talk through the details. Hope you're doing better since last weekend. So we're continuing to progress on. Here's how we're moving on. And then about three or four hours after I sent that message, here's what I get back from Lindsay. Hey, Paul, I got your text. I am quite shocked that you want me to pay you $750. I feel it would be in your best interest to turn this over to your insurance company despite you not wanting to originally do that. It is in your best interest to do so. After all, this is why you carry insurance on your motor vehicle. I will not be filing an accident report since I did not hit you or your motorcycle, nor was I involved in any accident resulting in any damage to my car or yours. I can't advise you, but you stated damages to your motorcycle were under 1,500 as a result of you leaving as a result of you leaving the road and wrecking your motorcycle. Looks like it's quite a bit under you, what DMV would require a person to file a report on. It's a very unfortunate situation that you wrecked your motorcycle, but again, I suggest you contact your insurance company. I really feel like a victim as a result of stopping to see if you were all right and needed help. Any caring, compassionate citizen or onlooker would have offered assistance like I did after just witnessing the accident. However, myself and two other witnesses uh, witnessed this and it has caused all of us a great deal of emotional pain, not to, be, not to mention being yelled at and photographed against my will. I suggest if you need $750 for damages you incurred to your motorcycle, then you should contact your insurance company right away and file a claim. If you have any questions or concerns, I can give you my folks' number to discuss with them. Pay attention to what's going on inside. What are you feeling? What do you notice? Anyone want to put words to it? Hello. You want to try? Is this working? Hello? There we go. Oh. Well, I was just going to say that it sounds like an entitled young person that um, is either used to having their parents rescue them or they've decided because money came into the picture and money is their God that they don't want to deal with it and could, they're passing the book. Could very well be. Absolutely. Anyone else just have feelings about the situation? I had lots of feelings, by the way. Lots and lots of feelings. Anyone else? What does that stir inside you? Very angry. Very angry how she twisted the whole situation. And it's yeah. now your fault. Yes. Which is, make me very angry. Yes. And frustrated. Yes. Et yes. Etc. Et yes. Anyone else? Yes, please. I was just thinking the second exchange of messages, yeah. um, it just feels like her voice is completely different. 
And so it makes me feel like one of the two is disingenuous. And the first one seemed authentic and it seemed like she was processing. And so now it feels like she's parroting something else that someone else has fed her because it just feels like a completely different person talking. Yeah, there was probably some coaching involved from someone somewhere somehow on that so that she could do whatever. Well, we know how it turned out. Well. Can you meet her? Um, I have never met her again. I don't know if I ever will, but I've never met her again. But this is a situation that I found myself in, and it makes, makes me ask the question that I'm asking you guys as we go through this series. Because wouldn't it be fair to say that there are some things in this world we can't control? I'm sitting on the motorcycle, fully responsible, and then to protect my life, I have to bail out. And now I victimized someone by doing that. And I've, and I've traumatized them because of how I reacted to that. Isn't this an interesting world? As we talk about anxiety, as we talk about how to deal with worry and stress and all these things like this, do you think this counts for a worrisome or stressful uh, experience? It was... Um, very worrisome and very, very frustrating. Um, let's take a quick reminder of the journey we've been on so far, and then maybe at the end I'll let you know what happened with this. Okay? Sounds all right? Dealing with uh, anxiety is both frustrating and uh, exhausting and discouraging. Debilitating was another word we had added in last week. Any other words you put in there? What does anxiety do to you? Or does that cover it all? What's another word for you? Well, I guess what I'm looking at is I always want justice. I want things to be fair. I, I want, fair. I want yeah. justice. I want it fair. So this story is doing great for you. Welcome to Monday night. We're so glad you came. This is a great way to start. It's hard, isn't it? That justice and fair thing. Did Confusion. Confusion. Anxiety creates confusion, absolutely. Powerful, powerful emotions. And so we've been going through, a quick reminder, what are the two things that cause um, anxiety the most? Fear of loss and problems that you can't solve. Very, very good. And both of those are rooted in what? Where do we come from? Oh, see, there's a quiz. There's always a quiz, guys. Haven't you learned this routine so far? Those two things come from worst case scenarios based upon past experiences because you're trying to obtain control. Sound familiar? Sound, sound like your world so far that anxiety's been living in? Again, has anyone come up with the scenario yet that doesn't fall into those two categories? Fear of loss or not being able to solve a problem in some way? Yes, fantastic, hold please. Because I wanna make sure that if you're in this room, that we can actually address your story and, and connect some dots for you and ha hopefully have some very tangible solutions that might come out of this. I don't think I, don't think I want control in the situation and okay. I'm really not afraid of loss. In okay. fact, I'd welcome loss. Um, but I want peace. I want no, nobody to be upset and mad and just go away. <laughs> Got it. 
Which is a little different than control. Well, how is that different than control? Because I don't want to tell people what to do. I don't care what people do. I don't really care what the solution is or where we go from here. I just don't want anybody mad about it. Got it. Does that make sense? Yes. If everyone could just stop feeling exactly. that annoying stuff called emotions. You're on to something. See? <laughs> if we can just make that happen, the world will get better. Actually, a lot of people spend a lot of time and energy trying to do exactly that. I want to stop feeling. I'm going to do anything I can to numb out, distract myself, make it go away, which is trying to control something that's pretty organic and natural. So I would argue there's still a little bit of a control piece going on there. But we actually might have a different word for you. And when we come to it tonight, I'll point to you and see if this plays out, all right? What's your name? What's your name? <laughs> Sally is a good, straight up, okay. Sally in the back. We might have one other thing there for her. We looked at all the ways that the world tried to help alleviate the symptoms of anxiety. So that is uh, just thinking different or breathing, meditation, relaxation, food, exercise. Again, all of those tend to work on a temporary basis. They're based on the symptoms and not actually dealing with the core issue. And instead, we said to get to the core issue, we're going to try an acceptance-based solution strategy. This counterintuitive thing, um, starting with speak out to reduce the freak out. Remember that? Actually saying it out loud makes it real. And a lot of us don't want to talk about it because we don't want to appear foolish or weak or unprepared or any of those things like that. And so we usually try to keep it to ourselves and when that happens, we tend to get lost in our heads and it tends to get recycled over and over and over and over and over again. The goal is to reduce the resistance because again, that what you resist persists. And so you have to welcome in that what you don't want to get what you want. And the whole point of this is what's the opposite of anxiety? What did we say the opposite of anxiety might be? Confidence. Confidence. And then we decided last week to go take a deep dive through what Scripture talks about. We talked about the Scripture that specifically talks about anxiety. It's the, the Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What is the four most important words that makes the phrase, do not be anxious about anything? What's the four most important words there that make that possible? The Lord is near. Again, it's that idea of when dad's around and you're a little kid, dad's going to take care of stuff. And you don't have to worry because you know you're going to be protected. You know that your all-knowing, all-powerful father's there to take care of you. That does not mean you're going to avoid pain. We wrestled with that idea. We looked through the ideas that Paul was talking about um, being in chains and still bringing God glory in the midst of that. And because of that, he's learned, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know that it, what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret. Again, that's kind of really good clickbait right there. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. 
and I can do all things through him who gives me strength. It's no longer a reliance upon your own ability. Because we have a hope in Christ, we have nothing to fear, including fear of death. Because if we die, if we have that hope, if we have that relationship with Christ, there's no downside to that. There's none, none at all. And again, for some people who can actually uh, understand that and personalize that, again, our 21st century ears really struggle with that because we want to be self-actuated. We want to be in control of ourselves. We want to make sure that we don't get hurt or taken advantage over that justice piece you talked about back then. We don't want to get hurt in that way. We want things to be fair, right? And we talked about this perspective right here, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but, is, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so we asked the question last week, what have you fixed your eyes on? Because if we fix our eyes on comfort, or everyone just getting along and there being no fireworks, or on justice or fairness, or whatever. If that becomes what we focused on, I would suggest that is what creates anxiety because none of that can be guaranteed to be held onto forever. Is that making sense? Is everyone tracking with me? That's where we've been. That's where we've been. And then, we have this week. This week was a shocking, shocking week. If you watch the news, we have Gilroy, Texas. We've got three dead and 12 wounded, including a six-year-old boy and a 13-year-old girl who were just at a garlic festival, who were there playing and celebrating, and someone decides to do a mass shooting. And then a few days later, a few days later, we have El Paso, Texas, 20 dead, 20 dead, 26 wounded. This is just a couple days. And then after that, like we can't handle any more, we end up having Dayton, Ohio, nine dead and 27 wounded. What in the world is going on? This is the world we live in. And so for when we love justice and we love fairness, this is not fair. This is painful. This is heartbreaking. This is maddening and frustrating. Would you agree? How many of you are seeing the news going, what is going on? Why? Why is this happening? Why is this happening? It's just overwhelming. Here's what's even maddeninger. More maddening? Maddeninger is what we're going to stick with. The quote from the last one from Dayton, Ohio is, um, the guns had been legally purchased, police said, and there was nothing in the shooter's adult criminal background that would have raised concern. He'd only had traffic tickets or sp for speeding and a failure to yield. And he was able to kill nine people and wound 27 in 30 seconds. Half a minute. Half a minute to do that much damage. Now here's what happens for a lot of people when they see these kind of things. They are going, number one, how in the world do we live in a world of such potential harm? How do we just 
function? How do we walk outside of our doors and know we're going to be safe, right? How do we know that nothing terrible is going to happen? You're right, Nikki, we don't know it. And yet, we are trying to figure out how to make that happen. Can you imagine having to be on guard for every 30-second catastrophe that could happen outside here? No wonder we're tired. No wonder anxiety is just eating us alive. But there's even a more important question than how do we live in a world of potential harm? Because that's, again, that's what anxiety is asking. But anxiety is fueled by one other question, even one better question, which says, how do you know you've done enough to keep yourself safe? How do you know you've done enough? Have you been foolish? Have you been unwise? Have you done enough that now you can go, oh, I can relax, and now I don't need to be worried anymore. I've done everything that I can do, and if something happens, it's, it's out of my control. So we have one theory. You can't ever do enough. Some of you might agree with that. What do you think? Just think about it for a second. You can't ever do enough. And if that's true, then we are constantly, constantly, actually um, in this cycle right here, which is we take inappropriate responsibility. We are put into a situation that says, I have to be prepared. In fact, again, I, I worked with someone a while back whose father was a police officer who was involved in some of these kinds of situations. And he would come home and he would inform his family the best way to get out of those situations. Not only the best way to get out of them, how to look for them before even walking into the situation. What this actually created for this young girl who grew up into an adult woman is she couldn't go outside hardly at all. She couldn't go to the movies. Church was scary for her. Um, any sort of gathering, because when she walked in, she was constantly going, I need to look for the exits, and I gotta look for the guys, or the people who are going to be potentially dangerous, and if something happens to me, it is my fault, because I haven't done enough to prepare. So that is called inappropriate responsibility. Inappropriate responsibility leads to hypervigilance. Again, is this constant scanning of the environment going, I gotta make sure I don't get hurt. I gotta make sure I can catch everything that might go sideways. And if I don't, it's my fault. So inappropriate responsibility leads to hypervigilance. Hypervigilance leads to self-doubt and anxiety because the reality is as human beings, can we catch everything? It's impossible. We can never fully catch every problem. And so when we can't catch every problem, we go, there must be something wrong with me, right? And if I just do better, and if I just learn one more thing, or if I just wear something different, or if I just don't go to this thing, or if I don't go to this thing with this person in this way at this time, and you're constantly, constantly, constantly trying to preemptively stop any sort of crisis or situation. And that gets exhausting. It gets exhausting trying to do that. So how do you know if you've done enough? Would you like to know? None of us would have any life. You're exactly right, Nikki. And that actually happens. 
This is actually the core of agoraphobia for individuals who can't go out because this has taken over their life in some way. Some people choose a better way in their mind. What is it? If I can't stop all of the problems and the pain and I can't be guaranteed safety, what's the best route to take? I heard it over here. Say it again louder. Suicide. If I can't guarantee my safety, I don't want to run the risk at all, and so I will make sure that I am never put into those situations. I want off. That sits in my office frequently. And we have to, again, learn how to live in this space where you cannot guarantee your safety all the time and how to still live with freedom in a world of potential harm. So I'm gonna suggest, I actually have a checklist for you. I got a checklist that I think there's seven things that if you, if you master these seven things or you answer these seven things, you have done 98% of the work and you can now go, ah, I've done enough. I've done enough. I can let myself off the hook. Would you guys like to know what those seven things are? I, I'm assuming some of you never heard some of these things in this context. You might have heard them in different contexts, but when we kind of put them in the idea of doing them to make sure you can get out of that hypervigilant state and you can finally relax, some of you are going to go, oh, this makes sense and I, and I like it. So we're going to go through seven things tonight on how to know you've done enough in a world of potential harm. So first one is, number one, did I have this information when I made my decision? A lot of people, a lot of people um, do this mistake, which is um, never judge the past decisions with current information. So you, I decided to, um, eh, I'll do that later. You decided to go out and do something and it turns out really, really bad. And you now go, man, I wish I never would have done that. You have to ask yourself, did I have this information right now? Did I have it back then when I made that decision? And if I didn't, then I need to give myself a break. Because number one, you can't ever tell the future unless someone's kind of figured that out yet. And if you have figured that out, please talk to me because I got some questions for you, okay? Especially regarding motorcycle riding. Um, Never judge the past, never judge past decisions with current information. And then be grace-filled with yourself. Did I have this information when I made my decision? And if you answer honestly, no, I didn't have that, and something goes sideways, then as you are grace-filled with yourself, you can go, you're allowed to not get it right. Again, you just didn't know. You just didn't know. So number one was, did I have this information when I made my decision? Number two, is there actually a black and white solution? A lot of us like very clear lines. There's a yes and a no. And if someone can give me a 100% guarantee this is gonna work, or a 100% guarantee this is a dumb idea, don't do it, that would make my decision making a lot easier, wouldn't it? We would love that, by the way. This is why movies are so nice, because typically, the bad guys are the bad guys, and they really don't wrestle with um, moral ambiguity. 
in the movies. I think the older ones, the newer ones are actually starting to wrestle with some of this now. It's a really interesting kind of um, blurring of the lines. But is there actually a black and white solution? Uh, the way I put it is maturity accepts ambiguity. There are just things you can't know. There's going to be gray areas, and there's not going to be any way to know for certain. Do you know what it looks like if you have to know for certain? There's actually a, a clinical term for it. A clinical term for people have to have as much certainty as possible. Some of you might actually be familiar with this on a personal level, okay? OCD. OCD is an intolerance for uncertainty. I have to make sure that I can know, I can know clearly that the door is locked. And so if there's any doubt, I gotta go back and check again. I gotta walk away. Well, was there, nope, I gotta go check back again. Okay, I gotta go, was there, can I get, and they get stuck in this loop because they have an intolerance for uncertainty. Anxiety is actually a low end of the spectrum and then you can go all the way to the far end and this is where you end up is OCD. And again, a lot of people have that in behavioral things, in emotional things, because you're looking for that certainty, that black and white answers. And it just doesn't exist in this world we live in. So again, maturity accepts ambiguity. So again, you have to ask yourself, is there a black and white solution? Now, there are some things that are black and white. Typically, killing someone as a solution to your problem is a pretty clear black answer. You probably shouldn't do that, okay? Can't think of a white one right now, but that was a common one. Anyone think of something that's black and white? I mean, it's just super easy, super clear. The right, there's only one course of action all the time. Eat sand or eat food. Yeah. That's pretty close. Except there is actually, there is, there's a clinical, like, the name escapes me right now, where you actually ingest stuff that is non-bio stuff. Anyway, but that's not a healthy choice, so thank you very much. Uh, so number three. So is there uh, actually a black and white solution is number two. Uh, number three, what issues are actually out of my control. Again, this is how you're trying to figure out, have I done enough? You can ask yourself this question. What issues are actually out of my control in this? So let's go through some of those things because control is the main issue we've been talking, with, talking about in this anxiety class. So number one is you actually can't control all aspects of your life. It's actually really intriguing to watch some of these health guys who actually believe that they can kind of do this. And they are, they are calculating to the nearest gram how much protein versus carb versus, versus uh, starches versus da, 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 da. And they are trying to dial in the perfect recipe for their body so that they can be the optimum level of health because they believe that they can control every aspect of their life. Some people think they can do this financially. Some people go, if I can't control all aspects of my life, then I'm terrified. I'm totally freaked out. But the reality is, you cannot do it. You can't control all aspects of your life. Um, bad news, you can't control other people. 
that's the hardest one right here. Sally, this is for you, okay? You get to listen to this part. You can't actually control other people. You can't control what they think of you. You can't control their behavior. And you cannot read people's minds. How many of you have anxiety based upon, I want to make sure this person over here doesn't think X, Y, or Z about me? Yes. That is frustrating, isn't it? Because we want to control what people think. Do I need to back up here? We can't control people at all. And so letting people think what they're going to think actually brings freedom for you. Now, it might be hard, but it can bring freedom. And I'd love for you to try it out and see what it feels like at some point. You can't read people's minds. Um, the next question, again, have I done enough? Have I done enough so I can relax and stop worrying about something, stop having anxiety? The next question is, is are my expectations realistic? Are my expectations about this situation realistic? So for instance, again, for some of you, this might be a challenging uh, next couple words, but I want you to chew on it for a little bit, okay? Karma doesn't work. It would be nice if it did, but karma doesn't work. Bad people get away with stuff all the time and really have no consequences for it. That's the reality of life. And the harder part of that equation is good people who deserve good things sometimes get screwed, sometimes get hurt, sometimes get wounded. This nine-year-old, uh, six-year-old boy and 13-year-old girl at a garlic festival. Is that because of karma? Are we really going to tell their parents that? Karma doesn't work. Sometimes it's unfair. And scripture is filled with these kinds of phrases because even people in the Old Testament are wrestling with this. How come, God? How come bad people get away with stuff and how come good people are just not making it? This doesn't feel right and it doesn't feel fair. We love that justice piece again. We love it being fair. So, are my expectations realistic? Are you, are you expecting, because you're a good person, to get good things? I would challenge those expectations. Are, you, are your expectations, this bad person who's driving me crazy is gonna have something bad happen to them? And that's my expectations. And when that doesn't happen, are your expectations realistic? The other thing that falls underneath um, the, the, are my expectations realistic? And Sally, this is for you, okay? It's called magical thinking issues. Magical thinking is everything is just gonna work out even though I haven't done what's actually necessary to make that happen. So it is the, I haven't worked out, I haven't eaten healthy, um, I have neglected my body, and now I'm in my mid-50s, and my heart's about to give out, and I have high cholesterol, and I'm massively overweight, and I'm going to be okay. My health's going to be just fine. That's called magical thinking. 
because you haven't done the work to achieve the goals. Finances are another thing that people have with that too. I haven't saved up money. Uh, I haven't actually got a job that can pay off of my debts. In fact, I'm getting more in debt each month, and yet I just know something good is going to happen. Again, that's called magical thinking. It's actually a um, stage of development for a lot of people. This is, all, you see it a lot in 13-year-old girls who are writing on their notebooks, um, um, dear Mrs. Or, or Mrs. Bieber, okay? Because they're gonna marry Justin Bieber and they just know it's gonna happen. Even though they have never met him, they have no chance of meeting him, they don't have any, it's not in any realm of possibility, but if you ask them, what are you gonna do with the rest of your life? I'm gonna marry Justin Bieber, okay? And we're gonna live happily ever after, and I'm gonna be da 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 Or I'm gonna be an Instagram star, or I'm gonna be all these other things that they don't understand the work that goes behind it. And again, that's a developmental stage for a lot of people as, as they are growing up because kids, kids are great at going, you mean I have to work? I don't actually understand how this works. Don't you just get a house and, and, a, and a roof over your head and food just shows up at the table? This is actually my favorite part of Hogwarts. How many of you like the, the feast part of Hogwarts where they just show up and floosh, all the food, yeah. Isn't that the best part? I love that. Wish my house had a table like that. I need to get some elves underneath. You had a question back here? Fantastic. Hi. Hello. Hi. So this, the magical thinking. Yes. Um, how do you, as a Christian, me yes. as a Christian, deal with the whole like taking a leap of faith kind of situation where if God is asking you to do something or discernment is asking, telling you to make a certain decision, but your anxiety is, is saying, like, that's a terrible decision. Why would you ever do that? Yeah. You know, like changing a job or moving houses or, or whatever your major decision is, sending your children to this school or that school or whatever, yeah. a decision, Yeah. going on a mission, whatever, yeah. whatever it is. And then you're like, why? That's not practical. You're right. That's financially not practical or whatever, whatever practical means to you in, in your decision-making process. Um, so I'm trying to like, I, yeah. I hear what you're saying. There is magic, but there's also this discerning of, okay, this is a faith situation. And then you're fighting your anxiety to, to, to follow God or no, really you shouldn't, you really should prepare and be, <laughs> be right. smart about what right. you're deciding to do. That's a great question. That's a fantastic question. Um, the short answer would be, um, Scripture is really, really clear that we actually are supposed to seek counsel from other people, some wiser people, um, and taking one of those, taking one of those leaps um, without seeking out other guidance or other perspective um, isn't. It would fall more into the magical thinking issue rather than the leap of faith. Um, God's calling me to do this. Because here's the other thing that happens really fascinatingly. A lot of people who say, well, I believe God's calling me to do this thing, even though I can't tell you how it's going to work out. And other people hear what they're going to be doing, and they're going, I don't hear God calling you to do that at all. That actually looks foolish to me. I'm under the assumption if we all worship the same God, then God's going to give the same message to everybody. This is a good idea. You should go for it. Yeah, I think he should go for it. Yes, I think that's wiser than to do for it. And there would be, there would be that, that counsel that you would receive that would all um, uh, provide confirmation of something like that. 
Here's the other thing that I can, I can um, easily and clearly talk about that a lot of people try to get around when it comes to this issue is God will never, ever, ever call you to do something that would break one of his um, guiding principles or commands or laws or things like that in order to serve him. God will never, ever call you to do something sinful at, in a way to serve him. And again, I've actually heard that justification as, as men have sat in my office going, I think God is calling me to leave my wife and so I can marry my mistress over here. And I believe that, that God is leading me to do that. I can very clearly say God's not leading you to do that. Okay? That's very, very simple math. Okay? God never asked you to do something sinful um, as, as a leap of faith. Okay? This is a good question. It's a very good question. Um, so are my expectations realistic for the situation? Again, how do we know that we've done enough and we can finally relax and let ourselves um, have a break, let ourselves off the hook when it comes to some important decision or some sort of course of action we have to take? The next one, so that was number four. Number five is I actually accept the fact that I'm going to have to make a decision. This is really, really hard for some people. You actually have to take action. You have to pick a, I don't know why there's an at symbol there. Apparently I'm something, typo. You have to pick a side. You have to pick a side. You cannot stay in the middle. I think it's here. This postmodern mindset that says, I want to be open to all options and possibilities. I don't want to limit myself. I don't want to lose out on some sort of experience or some sort of opportunity. So I'm just not going to do anything. I'm going to actually make a suggest from a clinician's point of view, this one issue right here probably contributes to more stress for 20s and 30-year-olds who come to my office. Because without a lack of foundation, without a lack of parameters, they are out like a ship on the ocean, and they have nowhere to dock. And they're constantly going, yeah, but what about this? I don't know if this is the right one because I can't make this, and I'll miss out on this. I don't know if I want to miss out on this. And what about this over here? And yeah, but if I do this, this person over here is going to think this about me, and I don't want them to think about this, so I better not pick this over here. So I'm not going to pick a side because I don't want to offend them. But if I don't want to offend them, I don't want to offend this person over here. And so, and so, and so, and so, and so. Can you hear the anxiety in that? It is exhausting. It is exhausting. So you're going to have to pick a side. You're going to have to make a decision at some point. And again, that's hard for some of you because some of you have not actually made a decision for years. You have played that, that middle ground on the fence kind of position for a long time. And you're going to have to risk offending people or disappointing people or be able to defend why you made that decision. Ooh, that's harder. The next one. I accept the fact that it might not work out the way I want it to. This one stinks. We want to know. It's going to work out. It has to work out. But I accept the fact that it might not work out the way I want it to. Because you're trying to decide, what do I do? How do I get to this place where I can finally go, I know that I've done enough. If you said, I'm going to take a course of action, and I accept the fact that it might not work out 
the way that I want it to, you can start to go, okay, okay. You have to be willing to be wrong sometimes. How many of you love that? I want to sign up for being wrong. (laughs) That is hard for a lot of people. Because if you admit that you're wrong, you open yourself up for criticism, for critique, for judgment, and you want to make sure you avoid any possibility, any possibility of being wrong in any sort of way. You guys have heard the phrase, uh, some, oh, oh, sorry, I missed one. I'm going to go back because I, oh, backwards. There we go. Um, Finish the phrase. Sometimes you win, sometimes you, that's the common one. Sometimes you lose. The phrase is sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. When you can start to make a shift like that, sometimes you win, sometimes you learn. It's like, oh, then that means um, do-overs do exist. It didn't work out this time. I'm going to try it again. I'm going to try it again. And if that doesn't work out, I'll try it again after that. And if that doesn't work, I'll try it again after that. That's a whole new concept for some of you. Some of you actually have grown up in families that said, if you make a mistake, you're not loved. If you make a mistake, you are now rejected. You have to earn back your position in the family. That has been some of your stories. This is hard for some people. And yet, it is a reality. You are allowed to have do-overs. In this world that we live in, you're allowed to have do-overs. Why? Because we are designed to heal. That was a couple weeks ago with that BMW video. Remember the BMW Gina that kind of moves and transforms shape as it drives down the road? You're designed to heal. That's why you can have a do-over again. It's why I still have skin on my knees. Actually, my shins. You remember as a little boy, there was a brick wall about knee height, and I went and jumped up on it, and my toes missed it. And the entire front half of my, both of my shins caught the front edge of that really sharp brick, and it was like a cheese grater. It just slides it off all. Skin grows back. And I can go, and I can scrape it off again, riding downhill on a mountain bike. And again, and again, and again, we designed to heal. That is how God built us. So we don't need to be afraid of that. Number seven, I understand that I have the ability to choose my response. If I can choose my response, then I have the ultimate freedom in this world. This is, again, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but I am response-able. I am response-able. I am responsible. That's what it means. So when you do something harmful or hurtful towards me, I can choose how to respond. Now here's something I want you to be kind of aware of, and some people aren't aware of the distinction here. Did you know that most feelings are automatic? You actually can't control most of your feelings. Again, the initial, the initial feeling that shows up, those are organic. Those just happen because of our humanity. So something scares you or startles you or makes you mad, This is why I've had to teach my wife, because she's such a really good uh, reader of my nonverbal communication. She'll do something, and I'll have an instant reaction to it. And then my cognitive brain kicks in, and I go, that's not the right action, Paul. You need to be a good husband. You can't do what you really want to do. You actually do love your wife. You need to respond in this way. Okay, I'm going to choose. 
I'm going to choose this response over here. And now it's about 20 seconds later, and I go, that's great, honey. Thank you. And she's going, nah, uh I saw this in this response over here, and you're in trouble, dude. And it's like, actually, early on in marriage, I said, nah, uh I wasn't having those feelings. I tried to flat out deny it. Again, she's not that dumb, okay? I had to learn, actually, honey, you're right. I had that response, but because I'm a fallible, sinful human being, I actually can admit I had that feeling that I have to move all the way to this, and this is my action towards you now. Even that was my initial feeling. It takes me about 20 seconds to shift. This is my initial, this is my action towards you now, and I need to be judged on my actions, not on my thinking, because honey, you can't actually read my mind, nor can I read yours. And she's learned how to become more grace-filled towards me, which is lovely. We're not perfect yet, but we're getting there. So being response-able, we do have the power to control our actions. So if you are able to do all of those things, you know that you have done enough. So let's put them through the story of the motorcycle. Okay, we have a test case right here um, before us. Did I have this information when I made my decision? I made my decision to go riding my motorcycle. Did I know that I was gonna be hit by this girl at the end of my block when I went riding my motorcycle? I did not know that that was gonna happen. I can't tell the future. I, I can't be responsible for that. So, was it okay for me to go riding my motorcycle that day? Or should I have said, no, I'm never gonna ride my motorcycle because there's the possibility I could be in an accident? No. So, did I have the information? No, I did not. So, I'm allowed to move on. Is there actually black and white solution? <clears throat> How do I fix this solution? Is there an actual right black and white thing here? No. But you have Say again? But you I am insured. Correct. Yes. Correct. Wouldn't it be nice if the fact that you were insured guaranteed you didn't get into an accident? Whew. That would be really good insurance. That would be superb insurance. Having insurance is always, in fact, insurance is there when you have an accident. It's actually a guarantee you should have an accident. That way you get your money's worth out of it. No, don't do that. Um, but there's no actual black and white good guy, bad guy here. Or is there? Okay, see, this is the questions we raised. Hold on a second, I'm coming. <clears throat> good guy, bad guy. Just that you did make the proper decision in the moment. Yes. Okay. Any other thoughts, black and white? Good guy, bad guy. A lot of decisions. To go for a motorcycle ride, to stop at the corner, yep. to watch her come towards you, yep. all those um, options you went through to try to figure out how to get around her. Yep. So what you could question was all of those. Exactly. Along the way. Right? You, you want to know the question I actually um, ask myself the most as I replay the situation in my head over and over and over again? And this actually falls into um, question three here. What issues are out of my control? The thing I wish I would have done differently is I dumped my bike to the right. I wish I would have dumped my bike to the left. What would have happened? She would have run over it. I would have been off of it, 
but then there would have been an entirely different protocol. Then there would have absolutely been a black and white discussion. Black and white discussion. But even in that, there's always an argument of, well, how much is it worth? And, and, and did you jump on your bike? And why did you jump on your bike? I wasn't going to hit you. I did see you. So there's still ambiguity in there. There's always a way to argue it, isn't there? Thanks, Holly. It's just, ugh. So what issues are out of my control? In that in motorcycle situation, what's, what were out of my control? Her actions. I can't make her get off her phone. Just can't do it. What else is out of my control? Her response. Oh, man. That is so very, very true. I can't actually control what she thinks of the situation. And what's the story she's telling about the situation? Who's the victim? She is. And who's responsible for traumatizing her? How many of you who want to really control people think, want to take her by the shoulders and go, no, 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 no. No. Let's put it in reality. This amazing little story you've spun. You have to tell the story right. That was about three weeks for me, by the way. I ran scenario after scenario after scenario on how to make her take responsibility. I can give a testimony. I watched her be on her phone. So there's a course of action she's suggesting, take them to court. There's a lot of courses of action I can take here. Let's go to number four here. Are my expectations realistic? So, what are my expectations about this situation? That I'm going to get justice, that I'm going to get my bike paid for, that it's going to be an easy, clean situation. Are those expectations realistic? <laughs> we have some people going, yes. But in this world we live in, yes. Again, back to that, sometimes the bad guys get away with stuff, and sometimes the good guys don't get what is rightly theirs. We have to wrestle with that idea here. But did I do enough? Are my expectations realistic? Number five, I have to make a decision. So I can't just keep sitting on this situation. This was over a year ago. I have to take a course of action. Okay, Nikki suggested do the court route, okay? Sue her, try to get your money and your justice that way. What other decisions could I make? Contact her insurance. I could try that route. What was the other one over here? Let it go. I could try the let it go route. We have a, 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 a veto of that decision. <laughs> a strong veto of that decision up front here. Any other things that I have to, again, I gotta pick a course of action. I gotta do something. Any other options? Oh, remind her of her original response. Yeah, that's actually an interesting thing. There's actually one more text in there um, that actually, I actually said that. I said, thank you so much for, in writing, accepting responsibility for this situation. I'll be contacting your insurance company and um, following up with them. That was the last text I sent to her. <laughs> what does she say back? We'll get to that in a minute, Nikki. Um, I have to accept the reality, again, if I want to get peace about the situation, things might not work out, and I have to be okay with that. How do I do that? Think back to 
How do I do that? Things might not work out the way I want them to work out. Am I willing to let that happen? How do I do that? Anyone? Pursue things so I have a clean conscience and let God handle the rest. That is a very good decision to make. That's one option. If I can maintain that, do you think I would get some peace, that I have some anxiety start to be reduced? Yes, hold please. Yes. You could turn the other cheek. I could turn the other cheek. Yes. That's, <laughs> we still have a veto of that one, a front. That is hard. That justice piece of us, that, that this isn't right, this isn't fair, and I want what's right. How do we give that to the victims of all of these, the, the families of all these shooting victims? Is there anything that we can do that's going to make it fair? Do you see the conundrum we live in in this world? It is not fair. What happened to me was not fair. And comparatively, is absolutely minuscule to what these families have gone through this last week with all of these shootings. This is the world we live in on a small scale or a grand scale. And we have to reconcile that in our heads somewhere. And most people haven't. Most people, again, are going, I just got to figure out how to get away from all of it. How to get away from all the pain. How to guarantee my safety. And they stuck in, they're stuck in that anxiety piece. And then good news is, I have the ability to choose my response. I can choose my response. I can't choose her behavior. I can't choose her thinking. I can choose my response. You guys want to know what I did? Let's close in prayer. Um, once I got back her final text, and it was uh, uh, fairly clear that she had been coached and she was not going to take responsibility, I made the decision to do nothing. I made the decision to let her get away with it. There's no consequences. I ran through several scenarios of writing letters, because I had her address. I know where she lives. I had options of offering um, an eye for an eye, shall we say, and I chose not to do that. Some people might have. I chose to do nothing. I chose to let her get away with it, and here's why, because Fairly recently, last year, we, my wife and I had been speaking on 1 Peter. And 1 Peter says, For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Again, he doesn't beat around the bush. You are getting screwed. This is not fair, this is not right, and you are suffering unjustly. Actually, I think I have it up here, yes. If you do good and suffer for it, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. 
for to this you have been called. This is a difficult passage, and yet it is a practical passage. We cannot get away from suffering unjustly. But when we are, there's the words, mindful of God. I didn't do this for Lindsay. I didn't do it for her. I did it because I have an inheritance in heaven that is unfading, undefiled, waiting for me. I have so much in my bank account, I don't need the $750 for her, from her. I really don't. Nor do I need the headache and the stress and the, and the internal conflict of having to chase her down, making her pay and making her tell the right story. Because I could spend years, some of you have spent years trying to get family members to tell the story the right way and not make you the bad guy. And you're not successful at that. You're not successful at that. And so, I'll come back to you in just a second. How do we, how do we, while suffering unjustly, do this for God? Yes, ma'am. I may have wasted some time this year doing that, but what really has saved me is Jesus. He did everything perfectly. You know, we yeah. can go back and see if we did all those things perfectly. Yes. But he did. Yes. And he lived a perfect life. Yes. And was he treated fairly? Yes. That so is... when I think of that and compare it to what I'm dealing with, yeah. like you said, it's just a tiny thing that I'm dealing with compared to that. Isn't that frustrating and difficult and hard? Again, I tell my kids that all the time. You can live an absolutely perfect life. You can be a perfect driver and still get into an accident. Still get into an accident. I'll come back to you here in just a second. I'm going to try to take them in order as I see them here. Yes. I guess I, I, I disagree. Okay. I feel like we, I feel like I have to do the right thing, which would be to go to small claims court. It wouldn't make me happy, mm -hmm. but I think that um, to let her scot-free is not a good thing. She's mm -hmm. not going to learn from that. I think if you do it maybe with love in your heart, but carry it through. Yeah. And why I think that we have, our world is so crazy right now with our president and what he is saying and doing. And I just read this article about the church that most presidents have gone to mm -hmm. and have been buried in. And they are speaking out, which is really a big deal, and saying this is not the time to let this go with President Trump. We have to speak out. Yeah, yeah. And, and I just feel like there are times that you have to do things that are difficult. Yeah. Like speak out or march or um, it just, that would bother me to not pursue, that's me. Yeah. To not pursue that, but yeah. everybody has to do what they have to do. This is a difficult concept, again, for our 21st century ears to actually entertain this idea. Again, I'm not saying that this is easy. 
I want you to be really, really clear. This was not an easy decision for me to come to. I didn't go into that going, yay, I got to lose $750 and had to go through this crappy experience. This, this, I'll do that again. I didn't want to sign up for that. I'm not saying that that was fun. But I am saying an option that you have available and what happens if, what happens if we responded like this in more ways. What might happen? What might happen? I have to wrestle with that idea and play with it for a while. See, I got your brains turning now. So hold on a second. We'll come to you two in just a minute. I'm going to come back here first. Yes. Several years ago, um, my mother died having a knee replacement and the doctor neglected her and that's why she had a stroke and died. And I have three sisters and we had to make a decision. Yeah. Were we going to sue the doctor? Yeah. And try to get, we didn't want so much restoration. Right. We wanted him not to be able to do this to other people. Sure. sure. But it was a tough decision because it, it would decision. not bring her back. Yeah. However, we went ahead and did it. It took us seven years. He was let go because of statute of limitations. And uh, what our attorneys told us was that we were doing this for the elderly of this time and that uh, it might make their future better. So that was our decision. And it was a, a difficult one, but taught me a lot of lessons because uh, the refuge in this church, our groups here, that we come to, that we visit together, that we're able to discuss these things, to make decisions, to help us, because uh, that's what our church does. Yeah. And it's a blessing. You don't have to make it by yourself. Right. Yeah, thank you. Again, this is the ultimate, the ultimate example of this. Someone actually mocked Christ for, if you're really God, you can call down thousands of angels and get yourself out of this. And he could have. He absolutely could have. We have to ask ourselves a question. Why didn't he? I'll come to you in just a second. Why didn't he do that? We'll go here first. Oh. You don't have to say if you don't want, but okay. when you made that decision, yeah. how did you feel afterwards and did yeah. God speak to you at all? Boy, I wish that he would have spoken to me. This is where I'll go back to that Philippians passage, okay? Um, the peace that passes understanding. When you have a peace that doesn't make sense for the situation, will guard your hearts, emotions, and your mind. And I can actually clearly say that I had peace about it. And I've slept well for the last year. I haven't thought about this hardly at all. It hasn't caused any anxiety in me. Did and God I had, say, well done? No, no. I wish he would. That'd be really nice. But, Aaron, but it, it, it doesn't happen that way. I think it's a little bit more of a subtle conversation. Um, I think that's how obedience happens sometimes. Yeah. Um, thank you, first of all, for sharing and telling us how you, like, wrapped up that situation. <laughs> I really appreciate that. Um, 
also because I think sometimes like sharing a decision that like one has made in front of other people is like then everyone's like well this is how I feel about your decision so like I can respect that you did what you decided was right and what you felt like you were called to do I feel just if we're talking generally about like the idea of this verse and like um and suffering and these choices we make like I think that like like it's kind of just having to suffer to like go through all the legal paperwork and hassle because you're like, I'm doing good. And the good thing to do right now is to hold this person accountable because maybe no one has ever taught them that lesson. And that's a good thing to do. And I feel like that is my duty to respond appropriately in the midst of someone not responding appropriately. And that means that now I didn't ask for any of this hassle and I'm having to, to I'm choosing to to do what I believe is right, and it is a hassle. Like, I think that, so I, I just feel like there's lots of ways you could, like, see it and interpret it. And I feel like even with Christ, like, he chose, like, the whole, like one of the biggest reasons that he didn't end up getting crucified is because he so consistently was like, actually, what you guys are doing is inappropriate, and this is what I think is right, and this is what is true. So I feel like it wasn't just, like, out of the blue, some random thing led Christ to be on the cross. It was, like, actually following through and pursuing the course of justice that led him to, like, stuff. Anyway, I just feel like there's lots of things to consider there's a in general. Lot, there's a lot to wrestle with this passage. Again, I, I'm glad that you guys are chewing on this and thinking through it and going, what would I do in that situation? Because I guarantee you, I promise you, each of you are going to face a situation like this where you are potentially being mistreated and how are you going to respond? And is there a response that is more Christ-like or more based in our humanity? And then I'll come back to you too back here. And I, I think this goes back to that verse in Philippians, right? Where it's talking about with all things, present your prayers and petitions with thanksgiving to God and you will have peace, right? You presented this presumably, to God, and you felt like he gave you wisdom through this verse, through that verse, and through just what was in your heart, and maybe through your wife, and you came to this conclusion together that this is what you were being led to do in this situation. Um, and I think that that is both such a, a blessing and something that makes Jesus really complicated and hard is that there's nothing in the Bible that says when someone almost runs you over on your motorcycle, you should turn the other cheek and forgive right. them, right? Like, right. it would be also biblically supportable for you to have made a different choice, yeah. right? This wasn't the only choice that could have been presented. Yeah. And, um, and so I think that, that that makes it wonderful. There's so much freedom and for God to speak to us individually, yeah. but that it's really hard, as sort of Aaron was saying, to say that in this situation, this is what you should do every yeah. time, right? Like there's so many okay options. Yeah, that's the idea here. I'm not, this isn't prescriptive. I'm not telling you, you should do this every single time. Because I actually went through a process. I actually talked about insurance. I talked about trying to get things done. I didn't just write it off right away. 
But this is one of the biggest, I almost said hugest, this is one of the hugest stumbling blocks for a lot of people in Christianity because this is the root of a lot of Christianity. The turn the other cheek thing, the if um, someone uh, takes your coat, then you give them your shirt. Um, if, you, if you ask to walk one mile, you walk two with them. Um, suffering unjustly, and we don't return evil for evil. I mean, Scripture is packed full of counterintuitive responses. And our brains, again, our 21st century minds are going, what? No. This isn't, this isn't what I want. I want justice. I want my way. I'm going to come to you second. I'm going to go first, and then I'll hit you, okay? So, the fact that you did... Yes. And did you tell her what your reasoning was for yeah. what you did? That's did a you great question. Did you let her know that? Again, I debated. I let her know that. I debated very seriously. In fact, I actually had written, I actually have a written letter, my response to her, and I chose not to send it. And here's why. And again, some of you might wrestle with me on this, and that's totally okay. It's not my job to teach her a lesson. It's not my job. I am not responsible because if I did, then I need to make sure each one of you, when you screw me, I'm going to come back and make sure you learn a lesson. I don't have time, guys. Good grief. I just don't have time to teach everyone the right things to do. I have to let go of that, what's the C word? That control. It's her parents' job. It's her job as a young adult. There's a lot of other things that are going to teach her how to do that. It's not my job. It's not my job. I don't take that on. And I can clearly and comfortably say, I have done enough. I don't have to do that. Seems to me that you could go to court, win the case, get your money. Yep. She would not necessarily learn anything. She might become more, more bitter and Very true. in that end. Yeah. I, yeah. get, I get very uneasy when I hear the, the current response in society, which is speak truth to power. Yeah. There are millions of people in the streets right now who are trying to speak truth to power yeah. in Hong Kong, yeah. and power is not interested and never will be in that no. situation, no. and they have all the guns. Yeah. And I, I wonder if that's magical thinking on their part, that think they can stop the flow of history. Yeah. My, my reaction to that again, and again, I'm being very careful because I'm not trying to open up a much broader decision because, again, there's a lot of thought and a lot of energy around these kind of things. Um, what would happen the other way? Instead of trying to push against power, again, that what you resist, what? Persists. But when you serve people, Back to that example I talked about when they were picketing the church they attended and they served them. What happened to their anger? What happened to that, that tension? It tends to go away much faster. And again, it's not easy. It's not easy. But I don't think Scripture talks to us about doing that because it's the easy way, but I think it's the more effective way. It's the more loving way. It has the greater eternal impact rather than temporal impact. Now, again, there are things we should fight for. There are things we should stand up for. I'm not saying this is a whole thing for passivism and being a pacifist and all these other things, nor is this, you know. 
I'm not making a political statement. I'm looking at what scripture says here and how do we wrestle with this case of injustice and how do we, how do we reconcile this, especially given the week that we've just had. Again, this is a painful and difficult and tangible and very real situations we have to deal with in an unjust, unkind world. The application of these biblical principles can look a wide variety of ways. The question is, where have you set your eyes on? Because this is all in the context of anxiety. And anxiety is rooted in two things, the fear of loss and not knowing how to solve problems. We had both of those things in the short story that we had tonight about a motorcycle. Loss of justice or loss of money or loss of all sorts of stuff. Or how do I solve these problems? We have to wrestle with these questions because they do create anxiety. They do create worry. They do create fear. And that can be debilitating. That can be exhausting. That can be confusing. And I want you to have some freedom from that. That's why we have to wrestle through these kind of hard questions. I do think I can make an argument that for those in this room who are Christ followers, we are called to live sacrificially. That we probably more often than not will not get our way because we are called for to this you have been called. We are called to not always get our way. But we do that because we are mindful of God and it is a gracious thing. It is a gracious thing. I don't know how Lindsay's going to respond to this, both now or in eternity. I can't take control of that. I do believe that if I'm trying to do something while, uh, while being mindful of God and being gracious, to think, being gracious to her, that God will take care of it. That God will teach her. That somehow someone who's much more powerful than I am will take care of that responsibility and I don't have to do that anymore. That is where my hope rests. And that's where your hope can rest as well. Even in difficult and very painful situations like you just described here. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you'd like more information, please visit paulelmore.com.